You're listening to the Dogaritaville Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Lily. We are two dog professionals with two different styles, two different backgrounds, and two common goals. To drink delicious margaritas and talk about dogs. Welcome to Dogaritaville. Welcome to episode 8 of the Dogaritaville Podcast. Today we are talking about behavior dogs and drinking Thanksgiving-themed margaritas. For every episode, each of us does our best to create a delicious margarita around our theme. We post the recipes on Instagram so you can try them at home. You can let us know if you have an idea for a theme, because we're running low, actually. (laughs) Uh, And our recipes always differ, so you have some variety to choose from. For this episode, as the title suggests, we'll be talking about behavior dogs. First, we'll talk about what a behavior dog is and how they become that way. Then we'll talk about what it's like to own a behavior dog, what it's like to rescue a behavior dog, and whether a behavior dog is the right fit for you. So yeah, let's start with just how we define a behavior dog, and I guess that's pretty subjective. Uh, But for me, it's just any dog that has severe fear, anxiety, reactivity, or aggression. I don't think I'm missing anything in that. And obviously that's a super broad definition, but I mean, to me, that's a behavior dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the outline, it's asking for my definition, but I don't think I can be trusted for my definition because earlier today, I forgot that I owned a behavior dog. (laughs) So (laughs) in my mind, a behavior dog has like serious behavior issues, and I guess Balto does have serious behavior issues, but maybe that's a commentary on what it's like to own a behavior dog because with the right family, a behavior dog has the potential to look like a completely normal dog. Yeah, I thought about that when uh, when you said that about Balto because I feel the same way about Peter. Like to me, Charlie and Doobie are my behavior dogs and I don't think of Peter as a behavior dog at all, but he is. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. just he works really well for me in my life and so it never comes up. But anytime we do something like out of our our routine or out of normal or something like that, like he can't come to family dinners because now I have a niece and a nephew uh, and he can't be around kids. And that's something that never, ever comes up in our life because <laughs> I don't like children. <laughs> but when I think about it, like, oh, he can't come to my brother's house anymore it's because there's kids now. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess you are a behavior dog, huh? <laughs> But he fits so well with me that I don't even think about it. And I guess kind of the same thing with Noble because he's pretty, pretty damn dog selective. But yeah, I think that's a really good point in the right house. You don't even notice. (laughs) Yeah, You don't even know you have one. I just wanted to uh, mention why we're doing this episode because I'm still (laughs) because I'm still mad. But I wanted to do this episode because I was listening to a podcast that I generally really like about aggressive dogs. And every episode is a different guest. And this one in particular, I was really excited about because the guest runs a Facebook group on behavior euthanasia that I'm a part of. And I generally like, it's not my favorite, but I like it. And then (laughs) like halfway through the episode, she drops this little tidbit of information that basically only dogs should be euthanized for community safety because we do not live in an only dog world. Okay, so that sentence is going to be confusing for people. So when we say only dogs, that means a dog that has to be the only dog in a house. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that, yeah, I won't 
delve into the details of that, but I should probably get a direct quote of what she said, but I'm not going to because I'm still mad and I can't listen to it. (laughs) Uh, But that was basically the gist of it, is that if a dog is willing to attack another dog, it should be euthanized because that is not safe. Anyone that knows me knows that I was absolutely furious. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I texted you instantly and just started screaming. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh So I just wanted to have kind of a more public format with a more realistic and compassionate view of behavior dogs and only dogs. With that, obviously, there is the precursor of, yes, if a behavior dog cannot be safely managed or placed, then yes, they should be humanely euthanized. I'm not fighting that. Uh, I believe wholeheartedly in and have done behavior euthanasias. However, I absolutely do not agree that every dog that needs to be an only dog should be euthanized based on that single qualification, especially when we're dealing with bully type dogs, because obviously they're a little bit more common for having dog on dog issues. You're, you're not going to wipe out a whole breed for that. <laughs> yeah. So we won't go too much into behavior euthanasia in this episode. It is on our list of future episodes, just to have a whole episode dedicated to it, but uh, I'm not capable of rationally discussing that without being hysterical yet, so (laughs) when that day comes, we'll have an episode on it. Yeah, I saw kind of a similar thing recently. Like, I listened to that episode, too, and it didn't strike me as much as it struck you, but I'm sure that it's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, history behind why that would touch a nerve for you. Well, and I thought about that because I was like, okay, I probably am overreacting a little bit, but like, that is what she said, right? Like, I'm not yeah. over exaggerating it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you could boil it down to that, but yeah. I also think that there might be room for her to explain herself. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, but I was watching um, a video by a friend of mine who is a dog trainer and has been for like 30 years or something. And she put out a video that I understood, but also made me sad. But she was saying, like, she's worked with a lot of aggressive dogs in her career. And she was just saying, like, at this point, I think that I want to focus on um, on dogs who aren't like this. And it, I don't know. It just kind of made me sad because kind of the message of that was there are certain dogs that just shouldn't get the energy of a trainer. And... I mean, maybe as a, as an individual, you might be burnt out on that and you can move on from that and that's fine. But I just really didn't like that encompassing message. There are people out there who can have an only dog and manage it correctly. Yeah. And just because, you know, you might not be willing to work with that dog doesn't mean that that dog can't live a good life with someone who's willing to, you know? Yeah. Well, and that was my takeaway from that episode is because her whole experience that that was based off of was she had a foster that attacked and almost killed her small dog. And I'm like, well, first of all, a big dog versus small dog, like the severity there is kind of circumstantial. So it's not like he was trying to kill necessarily. It's just, it's a small dog versus a big dog, right? Like, yeah. so there's a lot of details within that. That's like, he's not that severely aggressive. He just had 50 pounds on the other dog. Like, yeah. He could do a lot more damage with just one bite. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, so I don't want to go too far down that road because we could be here all day. But I think that is a really good point as far as trainers and trainers that are willing or able to do behavior modification. Because in my mind, that's 
what a trainer is. Not so much anymore, but in the beginning, I thought a trainer is a trainer, right? Like that's what you do as a trainer is fix dogs' problems. And sometimes that means aggression. Little did I know that that is not how training works. <laughs> I, th- I thought every trainer dealt with stuff like that. I had no idea that like most trainers just do basic obedience and stuff like that. But yeah, I think I, I have kind of a conflicting thing on that is like, yeah, I don't appreciate the message of we don't want to waste time on dogs like that. But at the same time, like from a self-care perspective, this shit is hard. <laughs> Yeah. And I am so fucking burnt out. And like, if I have to make a youth call on one more dog, I'm going to lose it. So like, I get it from that perspective, because if I wasn't such a stubborn ass, I would walk away too. (laughs) But yeah, I I definitely don't appreciate the like, oh, we're not going to spend our time on those dogs. Right. And and again, like as an individual, compassion fatigue is real. And you know, you need self care and everything. But it seemed to me like they were trying to convince other people to feel the same way. And yeah. like if someone has that energy to work on that dog, then let them do it. Like, yeah. that, you know, 100%. Yeah. At this point, there's probably a burning question in our listeners, which is what makes a behavior dog? How does a dog become a behavior dog? And the fun part about this question is it has no answers and also 100 answers. So we've kind of touched on this before, but... With any sort of behavior problem, there's really no way to say exactly how it started, and it's also not super important. But with dogs, there will always be an element of nature versus nurture. So there could have been some specific incident that led to a behavior issue, like maybe a dog doesn't like people because it was abused in a past life, which is not as common as shelters and rescues would have you believe. The dog might be reactive to other dogs because it was attacked at some point and is suffering long-term effects of that. So that that is a possibility. But in my experience, and this is very anecdotal, if a dog is reactive or fearful towards something, that's usually because there was lack of socialization during the imperative weeks of socialization. So for those of you who don't know, the best time to socialize a dog with various things is before 14 weeks of age, which doesn't leave you a huge window. And depending on nature, socialization may not matter as much. Some dogs are just naturally confident. But in a lot of cases, lack of exposure to something will result in fear or reactivity toward that thing if it wasn't done within that window. Yeah. So, I mean, I <clears throat> I would agree that a large percentage of the time it's based in socialization. I would just take out the time period because you can socialize a dog, obviously, at, at any age. I get what you're saying. Yeah, there is a period with puppies. But since I don't really work with puppies, I mean, I can do that same socialization at any time. Obviously, it's a lot harder, but. Yeah, I mean, with that's kind of what your job exists for, right? Like you yeah. do behavior <laughs> mod because there were some things that were maybe missed within mm-hmm. those imperative weeks. As far as nature goes, some behavior issues will come from the conditions the dog was born into. So you'll see a lot of kind of neurotic behaviors in dogs who come from backyard breeders and puppy mills. The mother is kept in very stressful conditions and her stress and her anxiety can affect her puppies in the womb. And just as an anecdotal story about that, there are two dogs in my family who both came from the same litter from the same backyard breeder. My mom owns one of them now. My grandma originally adopted it. And then my cousin owns the other one peach and bowser we talked about peach in our hiking episode but they grew into adulthood and they have completely different fears and preferences so peach prefers dogs and is scared of people bowser 
is the opposite. He loves people but is scared of dogs. But they're both just completely neurotic and it just manifested in different ways. And I'm 100% convinced it's because of the conditions that they came from. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of how like Peter is too, right? Like I got him at eight weeks. He was rescued when he was only a couple days old. He's still a neurotic mess. Like he's still terrified of people, even though no person has ever done any harm to him. And I can say that with certainty. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's sometimes just, you know, where they came from, right? Yeah. Even if it's not them physically, just like that environment still affects them. Yep. So in that case, you know, you can't just kind of look at someone's dog and say like, oh, you didn't socialize it when it was a puppy. Because some dogs like that nature is a lot stronger than the nurture. And it's just the way that it is. Oh, yeah. 100%. Well, and like Church is a great example. He's like the most stable dog ever. I don't know where the hell he was for his first two years. But I'm going to guess it wasn't anywhere great that was doing a lot of socializing. (laughs) (laughs) So that's some information about what behavior dogs are and how they might become that way. We'll take a break here. And when we come back, we will talk about owning a behavior dog. Margarita check. Laura, how did you make your Thanksgiving margarita today? I went with a cranberry margarita, which I'm realizing now is very similar to what I lived on when I drank a lot. Uh, I used to like <laughs> only drink Cape Cods, which is just cranberry vodka and lime. Oh. This is essentially the same thing, just with tequila. Um, so I did two ounces of tequila, one ounce triple sec. I only did one juiced lime because I felt like the lime and the cranberry were going to be a lot together. I wasn't expecting to have to use agave, but I did because it was super tart. Uh, So one teaspoon agave, two ounces, 100% cranberry juice, and then I have it on the rocks with a lime wedge. And then just because it didn't feel very festive, I also added a cinnamon stick, (laughs) which is delightful. I don't know that the cinnamon stick makes any difference, but it is what it is. So I didn't know what to do for my Thanksgiving-themed margarita because to me, Thanksgiving is like gravy. So like, you know. I was like, that's not going to be very good. Um, But I know that cranberries play a big role in Thanksgiving, but I hate cranberries. Ugh, what is wrong with you? I know. I'm broken. I get it. Well, every year for Thanksgiving, I make pumpkin pie. And so I thought about doing a pumpkin one, but very quickly was like, that sounds gross. I found a recipe for a pumpkin pie one and I almost did it, but I just couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Mm, (laughs) It was literally like pumpkin puree. Ew, no. With like pumpkin pie spice. And I was like, I am not putting tequila in pumpkin puree. I'm not doing it. Put it in your latte, but not your tequila for sure. And so after I nixed the pumpkin pie idea, I was like, well, you know, apple pie is a thing too. So then I looked at kind of apple-y margaritas and I found one on the Soccer Mom blog. (laughs) (laughs) I think I must have looked at the same one because I was going to do that one. But then I okay. was like, I couldn't bring myself to buy pear juice. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Yeah, I altered it a little bit because I tried to make it earlier today and it was so sweet. Didn't taste like tequila at all. And I just really hate ultra sweet things. So I altered it a bit. So what I ended up doing is three ounces tequila, three quarters of an ounce of triple sec. And then I put in a few shakes of orange bitters just to kind of give it that more... 
spicy feel, I guess. What is that compared to triple sec? Bitters are, I don't really know how to explain them. I need to Google it. They're like liqueurs, but they're not sweet like that. And you just need a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm literally Googling what are bitters. An alcoholic preparation flavored with botanical matter so that the end result is characterized by a bitter, sour, or bittersweet flavor. Interesting. Yeah. So Scott uses bitters a lot. He really likes that kind of bitter floral taste, and I don't. But I thought it would be good just to add into the really sweet drink. Yeah. For the more, like, spicy Thanksgiving feel. And then I did... Just a little less than the big side of my jigger, which is an ounce and a half. So a little less than an ounce and a half of apple cider and then a little less than an ounce and a half of pear juice. And then I used the juice of half a lime and the juice of half a lemon. And then I combined cinnamon and brown sugar, dipped the rim in my apple cider and then dipped it in the brown sugar mixture and then garnished that all with a cinnamon stick. And I like it. It's really good. That's very elaborate, though. It is. Seems like a lot of work. It was. Yeah. But (laughs) you do it for the gram, you know? (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So let's get into what it is like to own a behavior dog. So I'm just going to say this very straightforward and plainly, that if you have a behavior dog, you have to have a trainer. End of story. Very little exception. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I have a lot of clients that are like new clients and they've had this dog for years and they've never trained it before until something happens. And it's like, you were very, very well aware that this dog had issues. You just never addressed it. That's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not saying everybody's goal should be to have a perfect dog. Obviously, if they fit in your life, that's fine. But I think just for the dog, you should probably always be working to make sure that they're as happy and healthy as possible. And if they are very unstable, they are probably not all that happy or healthy. (laughs) Right. You know. We touched on this in segment one, but it's important to say that, you know, behavior is usually a response to what's happening internally for a dog. So if a dog is like, being aggressive it's not because he's just super happy biting everybody (laughs) there's like something going on internally that's you know that indicates that he's not exactly happy yeah so i'll just be honest and say that i had very little to do with this outline (laughs) (laughs) i started looking at it like a half hour before we recorded i mean to be fair i only made it like two hours before we recorded so (laughs) we're not too far off So there's a little line in our show notes in blue, which is my color, that just says crate training is an essential skill for behavior dogs. So I'll riff on what I think that means. (laughs) Laura can correct me if she has something else in mind. (laughs) So as as a little tidbit, our our outlines are color-coded, so we know who's saying what. And almost the entire outline is orange, which is me. So I wanted to talk about how crate training is essential for behavior dogs, but... I didn't want to be talking for two hours straight, so I just wrote it in there for her. (laughs) Okay, so let's see if I can get this. So So there are lots of behaviors that are going to be the dog is having trouble getting along with something. So another dog or people or something like that. And so crate training is really helpful because the dog can be somewhere safe, not bothered by whatever the stimulus is, and also not 
Wow. Hello. I'm being accosted. Do we can you say hi? Hi, Doopy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough. They heard you. They heard you. You're done now. He has to do it once an episode. Every time. I almost left in like his 80 barks in a row from last time, but didn't do it. <laughs> this was a cute short on command bark that we can leave in. So anyway, crate training can often help you manage your dog's behavior. So there's my riff on why crate training is essential for behavior dogs. And let's hear what Laura has to say about how I did. <laughs> well, um, so I mean, just to be a little bit more elaborate on it, just that crate training really helps, you know, for fear dogs, it helps build confidence and gives them that safe place. Uh, same thing with anxiety dogs. And then for aggressive dogs, uh, it's really just practical, right? Like mm-hmm. if your dog doesn't like other dogs or your dog doesn't like people, even if you don't have visitors, like sometimes shit ha- your air breaks or whatever breaks and you have to have a service person in. I am personally not comfortable leaving a dog in a bedroom because what if they hit the handle the right way or what if they like, you know, shit happens. I'm not relying right. on one door <laughs> to yeah. hold my aggressive dog off from somebody that's fixing my air or something like that. Um, so for me, I really just use it as a safety measure for aggression, but then I also use it for a confidence builder for anxiety or fear. That's a good place to say like, you can, of course, just like shove your aggressive dog into a crate. But like the point of crate training is to make it so that when you have to crate up your dog, he feels comfortable and safe. Yeah. So I'm not saying just use it for those instances. Your dog has to like the crate and be trained on the kennel. It can't. You're not just like, oh, someone's at the door and he's losing his shit. I'm going to go shove him in a box. Right. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Crate training for me is essential, if nothing else, for safety. So... Yeah, I guess there are some some exceptions for like fear and anxiety dogs. Sometimes the kennel is an aversive to them and it's it's harder to come overcome. I would still say work on it, but <laughs> yeah. But yeah, especially for reactivity or aggression, it's I'm going to say there's little to no exception there. Balto's a really good example of that, right? Like he had super severe separation anxiety, high high anxiety. He couldn't be in a normal kennel. We had to buy him an Empire kennel that's like $500. And he absolutely cannot break out of it. Right. (laughs) And because we bought him that kennel, he got better in the kennel. Because so a lot of people are like, oh, well, if you get him an industrial kennel, he's just going to hurt himself trying to get out. I'm sure that does happen, but it's pretty fucking rare. Yeah, uh, I've had some very, very severe separation anxiety, kennel anxiety dogs. They may try to break out, but it usually lasts about three seconds and they realize it's not going to happen and they let it go. <laughs> yeah. I've had dogs that are pretty damn horrendous in the kennel, but I know that the Empire Kennel keeps them safe and most dogs are not going to injure themselves trying to get out. The worst I've had is a dog tried to chew on the bars a little bit. They realized it was having zero effect. <laughs> yeah. And gave up pretty quick. And again, that's a rarity. And and again, you're still doing kennel training. So ju- you're not just buying an Empire kennel and shoving him in it. Like, I still worked Balto like crazy getting him used to it. And now he loves it. And it's essential for him to be happy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because otherwise yeah. he'd be jumping six foot walls and tearing apart the house and breaking through windows. 
Yeah, and it's it's like really obvious that he's so much more comfortable in his crate. Like if I leave the house to do something like, you know, if I'm just going to the garage or something and I'll leave him in a room, like he kind of panics a little bit, like not as much as he did in his past life. He doesn't break my windows, but you can tell that he's kind of like, oh, my God, where are you going? What's happening? But yeah. if I put him in the crate, he just settles. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what I mean. Like crate training is essential for dogs with big issues. And that might mean you have to invest in an empire kennel, depending on what the issue is. Personally, for my aggressive dogs, Charlie and Doobie are both very well kennel trained. They both love their kennels. I'm not trusting them in a black wire kennel or a plastic travel kennel. I'm not doing it. Because on the off chance that shit hits the fan, even though it's been years and nothing like that has ever happened... I have to think about worst case scenario because of who they are, right? Yeah. <laughs> so even though Charlie has never even thought about breaking out of a kennel, I know that if for some reason he does, it's going to be bad. So I'm yeah. not trusting a black wire kennel. He still has a heavy duty kennel. There's no reason to risk it. So yeah, I mean, it's just an essential skill, especially for a behavior dog. Like I said, there are some minor exceptions but i feel like if i can train peter to go into a kennel and love his kennel you could probably train other dogs to go in their kennel <laughs> it's a useful skill for like any any dog to have though because like when they go to the vet they're gonna have to be in a kennel when they go to the groomer or when uh if you yep. you know need to find emergency care for your dog and have to board them they're gonna be in a kennel like you might yep. as well just make sure that they're comfortable in there yeah and if if your dog really doesn't like it and you really don't like it, then take it slow and it might take six months before you guys stop hating it. That's yeah. fine. You don't have to force them into it in the meantime, but at some point, a year from now, you're going to be real excited that you have it. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I've never met anyone that's regretted crate training. <laughs> that turned into quite the tangent. Uh <laughs> it sure did. So just as far as kind of managing a behavior dog, I think it's important to know your dog's thresholds in any given situation and act accordingly. I'm pretty conservative when it comes to management because behavior dogs don't generally get several chances. So if there is any question or concern about whether or not you can manage them in a specific situation, I'm going to err on the side of caution. <laughs> yeah. And if for some reason you can't manage them anymore, there's not a lot of options. So I would just always rather operate under the worst case scenario and be overly safe so that I don't put their life at risk, which sounds dramatic. But again, when you're dealing with behavior dogs, that's literally where you're at, right? Like, yeah, I love Charlie. Charlie works very well in my house. But the fact of the matter is he has one more incident and that's it. He doesn't get any more chances, right? Because we used up all our chances figuring out what was wrong. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's just really important to not put your dog into a situation that they haven't been conditioned to handle safely. Uh, and if you're not sure if they're going to handle it well or you're not sure that you can handle them well in that situation, don't do it. Yeah. That's all there is. <laughs> just don't do it. It's that simple. If you're not sure if your dog is going to be able to handle the guy coming to fix the dishwasher, that's fine. Go put him in his kennel with a bone. You don't want to risk that liability and you don't want to risk an incident. So why do it, right? Doobie is a really good example. Um, he has a really hard time with visitors in the house. Uh, he warms up pretty quickly to new people with proper intros and a certain amount of time. 
but people coming in the house is still pretty hard for him. So we have kind of a, a few different rules of kind of safety for everyone, what for him as much as whoever's visiting, right? Um, so most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, if someone's coming over, he just gets put in his kennel with a Kong or a marrowbone just so that he associates associates visitors with being safe, no confrontation, and getting some sort of high-value treat. That's just the reality of having a behavior dog. I'm n- Not every visitor is going to be a training opportunity. Like, I, I have to live my life. <laughs> yeah. His actual interactions and training with visitors are very specifically coordinated and controlled. He's usually muzzled. I don't muzzle him every time because, like I said, he's generally pretty good. Like, so usually I'm working him with people that are either trainers themselves or very experienced. So I can get away with not muzzling him because they listen and they know kind of what we're doing. And again, that's part of keeping them safe and keeping him safe is that I'm picking the people to work with, right? I'm not just inviting my neighbor Carol over and being like, just stand still and don't stare him in the eyes. Like, no, (laughs) that's not what I'm doing. As if you know your neighbor's name. Like, there's no way. (laughs) I actually... (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) And very true. I think her name's Jennifer. I could be wrong. But yeah, so he's usually muzzled just to be extra cautious He's very obedient and under control, so I, I, I don't worry too much about him. But, you know, why take the chance? He's always on leash, even if it's somebody that he knows and has done well in, with in the past. Just if if something does happen, something changes, I just need to be prepared. And it's a lot easier to grab a dragon leash than to grab him physically. So that's something that I hear a lot from trainers who work with ag- aggression cases is have at least those two barriers of safety. So you've got your dragging leash and you've got your muzzle. Yep. So that kind of segues into muzzles are your friend. Most people are very averse to muzzles. They think that it's some sort of label and that their dog is vicious. That's not what muzzles are. They're just like a baby gate or a leash. They're a safety protocol, right? So yeah, definitely just some things to think about. Would you Would you rather be fighting for or losing their life or would you rather just put the protocols in place that make that close as close to impossible as you're going to get right and for me that means leash muzzle creates a lot of safety protocols so that's the more i don't know if extreme is the right word but that's the more extreme side of things so i'll talk about my experience owning a behavior dog and for those of you who maybe didn't listen to the episode or don't remember i have a dog from the Churchill Foundation named Balto. And his behavior issue is that he has severe separation anxiety such that he caused so much property damage to one of his past owners' (laughs) homes that he could not be adopted out again. (laughs) So that's what we're working with. So in my family, owning a behavior dog is all about management. And when you take on any dog, but especially a dog that you know has certain issues, uh, you're committing to a life change and I feel like a lot of people don't really fully get that when they take on a dog because a lot of questions that I get as a trainer are things like how can I potty train my dog without taking him out every hour or like how do I crate train my dog when I'm gone 12 hours a day and stuff like that and the answer is you really can't you need help you need to be able to work with your dog to a certain degree I'm not magic you're not magic like (laughs) you know you have to be willing to have a life change instead of expecting your dog to seamlessly fit into your family. 
with no work. <laughs> um, for example, when we took on Balto, we knew he could not be alone for extended periods of time. He has that special crate, the Empire crate, that is damn near impossible to disassemble and reassemble. And so <laughs> when we leave the house or when we go on vacation, uh, we can't leave him with someone else at their house because we can't take that freaking crate apart and we can't transport it. And so so I can't be sitting here asking questions like, how can I own Balto and not need to figure out his care? That's an irresponsible question. I can't do it. He's part of my family. This is what I committed to. I can't expect any part of his training to be magic, and he will never be like a quote-unquote normal dog. That would be my little soapbox about what it's like to own any dog, but especially a behavior dog, is you're committing to that life change. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point I didn't think of, that I feel like most people, if they take on a behavior dog, they take it on thinking that they can, for lack of a better term, fix them. Right. That's something that was like really hard to come to terms with for Charlie is like there's there's nothing to fix. Like he yeah. just he he doesn't like other dogs and he doesn't need to. I mean beyond the fact that I would never be able to get him to <laughs> safely. Right. But like that's not what he wants. When I separated him, he became so much calmer and happier and like that is very blatantly what he wants. Yeah. Is it what what I wanted? Absolutely not. <laughs> but that's that's what I got. If you're going to take on a behavior dog thinking that you can solve the problem, you shouldn't get a behavior dog. No. If you're going to get a behavior dog, you need to operate under the assumption that it will never be fixed. It will likely get a lot better. Yeah. But the possibility of it never being fixed is pretty huge. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I think a lot of people view dog training as like when it's successful, it means that this dog is friendly and happy and obedient all the time. And that's rarely the case. Like just an example that I can think of is I trained with a dog named Piper when I was living in Washington who was really, really great and her family was great. And one of their issues with her was she didn't like kids and she would be kind of mean to the children. She didn't ever get to a bite, but she was obviously like – unhappy that they were there and it was heading that way and they have kids over at their house all the time and so um, success for us looked like Piper can be in that house and even in the same room with kids without getting upset at them but she's never going to play with them like success does not look like her being happy to interact with the kids but she can be comfortably in the presence of those kids as long as they are respectful too yeah for like me and Doobie, our goal was never for him to love every person that walks through our door. Our goal, and we've accomplished that, is if I spend the time and calmly and slowly introduce you to someone, you will accept them. And he has done that, no issue. So like to me, that's success. We're good. We've we've hit our goal. We're yeah. still always working, obviously, but like my expectation for him was never to love every person because that's not who he is that's not who i am either so it works out (laughs) (laughs) but like that's you just have to taper your expectations so i think we've pretty much talked out what it's like to own a behavior dog so we'll take a break and when we get back we'll talk about how to take on a behavior dog into rescue and what that looks like Margarita check. How are you enjoying your Thanksgiving margarita? Mine is actually pretty good. I wasn't sold on it at first, but I like it. I didn't have time to uh, troubleshoot this one. 
Um, so if I had to do it again, I would probably change some stuff, maybe add some more cinnamon because I feel like that's really helping me. And I think, too, with a theme as broad as Thanksgiving, there was like three other recipes that I really wanted to try. So I might be stuck on this for a while. Maybe this this is just our theme for a while. I think yours is probably uh, a little bit more my style because apple cider is my jam. Mm. But it's it's really good. I like it. I mean, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> taste like a margarita to me, you know. Mm. But it's good. Like it's a good cocktail. It's a nice appley fall cocktail. That's a good point. Mine mine still tastes kind of pretty margarita. So I was like, does it? So for this segment, I think that the listeners would be really interested to know, and I'm also just interested to know, the process of taking a behavior dog into rescue and then placing that dog. So can you walk us through that process? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That that process is pretty involved, so I, I may or may not miss some things, but you have to ensure that you have everything in place to responsibly do so. So my uh, my little warning before, before all this is to just say that I cannot stress enough that if you do not have the resources for them, whether you're a, an individual person or a rescue group or a shelter, if you do not have the resources for them, whether that be space, time, money, access to trainers, whatever, it, the proper insurance, let's not fail to mention, <laughs> you should not take on a behavior dog. In the past, when we have had to make behavior euthanasia decisions, we've had other rescues contact us begging to ha- let them take the dog that we're going to euthanize. In interviewing them, because it's like, I'm not opposed to doing that if you're you have more resources than I do. But it's like, do you have the proper insurance? No. Do you have trainers on staff? No. Do you have, like, you don't have anything in place to take this dog on. <laughs> like, you can't do that. So you see it a lot, especially with, like, more poorly run rescue organizations. They'll take on behavior dogs, like dogs that don't get along with other dogs, and they just sit in boarding for years because they can't find a foster that doesn't have other dogs, and they can't find an adopter that doesn't have other dogs. And in the meantime, that dog is not getting any training or anything like that, and that's not okay, right? So our first consideration when we take in a behavior dog is do we have the resources? So we don't take in a lot because usually the ones that we already have are still they're with us for longer periods of time, right? Um, So if I already have three behavior dogs that we've had for a while, I'm not going to take in a fourth behavior dog because my attention needs to be on the three that we already have. So that's kind of our main consideration right off the bat. So if your rescue like can't make it work with a certain dog, my question that I wrote down was what are the alternatives and why is it more responsible to let those alternatives happen? And what I heard in your in your statement just now was sometimes the alternative is a behavior euthanasia and that alternative is more responsible because it's irresponsible to let a dog live in conditions that are not suited for it for years and years. We're kind of like the last line of defense in a lot of ways because there aren't a lot of rescues or trainers that specialize in shelter dogs with behavior issues. And so if we take on a behavior dog, there's not usually another alternative. It's either we make it work or behavior youth. 
Mm-hmm. The idea that dogs can just go to sanctuaries is kind of a myth, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> one, that's not a very good quality of life for most dogs, and they don't really exist. Everyone's like, oh, call best friends. Best friends doesn't just warehouse aggressive dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I would almost argue that you cannot get an aggressive dog into best friends. So and and most trainers that do aggressive dogs, you know, they're full. They don't they don't have a sanctuary to keep them at forever. So they're training them and trying to get them out. So it's like that's what one, that's what we already did, but two, those people aren't eager to take on a random shelter dog, right? Because there's no money in that. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously they've already been through a training process that didn't work. So Generally, the alternative, if we can't make progress with them, is usually behavior youth. I would love to say that there was, like, someone else we could send them to for one last shot. There's generally not. Um, And the way that our protocols work is it's never a unilateral youth decision. So uh, not only have I personally worked with them, but we've usually had at least one or two other trainers also work with them before we make that decision, right? So uh, we've kind of exhausted all efforts. Yeah. And then the other question that I had written down was just how do you get a behavior dog? Are they shelters reaching out and asking you to take them on or individual people or what? Both. I prefer to take the dogs from the county shelter. Just legally speaking, it's a little bit more clean that way. Yeah. (laughs) So I prefer to take the behavior dogs from the shelter. And those dogs tend to be a little bit easier because... A lot of the time, and again, not always, uh, but a lot of the time the behavior issue in the shelter isn't a real behavior issue when they're in a house. So I prefer to get all of our behavior cases from the shelter just because it's a little bit more cut and dry, both legally speaking and behaviorally speaking. But we do take owner surrender behavior cases, um, like I have one right now, uh, my foster Perrier. He was purchased as a puppy at like six or eight weeks off Craigslist with his brother. And they are shepherd lab mixes. His brother looks a little pity, so they might have some pity in there too. But they were bought as litter mates when they were puppies and to a really nice couple in a really, really nice house. (laughs) And they were just never trained or socialized. So, well, I can't say they weren't trained. They know like all their basic obedience, but they were never socialized with other dogs or people. They just were house dogs, essentially. And so... Now they're two years old and they're both, you know, 80 pounds (laughs) and they've never been exposed to people or dogs. Um, So they had a visitor come over and he uh, bit him because he's not used to visitors and he's never been trained for visitors. So now he's 80 pounds and there's a guy walking into his house that he 100% runs. I mean, his family was very, very nice. They, They loved him. They spoiled him. But Sometimes that can be more of a problem than a a good thing. And so he bit a visitor. They did a consult with the trainer. The trainer said, this is absolutely fixable. This is this is what we need to do. And they never did the training. Uh, They just did the consult. And yeah, they just did the consult and never hired the trainer. Then for whatever reason, I'm assuming it was an accident. The husband left the front door cracked. And so when a lady walked by with her dog, Perrier went running out to go after the dog. She picked up her dog and he got her on the arm trying to get to her dog. Uh, So at that point, they tried to euthanize him and the vet refused to euthanize him because she was like, hey, this is a two and a half year old, very healthy dog. You haven't even tried training. We're we're not going to do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Which, thank awesome. God. Yeah. Yeah, right? I was like, whew, look at you. So then they contacted the original trainer asking for him to vouch that he they have an aggressive dog that needs to be euthanized. And the trainer was like, uh, I told you it was fixable. You chose not to do anything. So the trainer contacted a rescue group that we work with who contacted me and so on and so forth. So we get them from all over. Like I said, I prefer to take them from the shelter because it's a little bit easier uh, not dealing with owners that love their dog, but obviously can't handle them. But yeah, so we get them from all over, I guess. Cool. Well, those were just the questions that I wrote down. You can get back to your very carefully planned outline here. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, probably the first thing that we do uh, when considering to take on a behavior dog is to just look at their history. If I feel like there's certain things in the history that make me think that it's it's not going to be an easy fix, then I might not accept that dog, right? Like, I'm not looking to take on dogs that are the hardest cases. <laughs> I mean, I feel like personally you I, are, but... <laughs> I <laughs> To a certain extent, yes, but, like, there's certain, like, keywords and key things that I'm like, oh, no, that's not fixable. And that just varies on what it is, right? Like, if dogs are going out of their way to do things that aren't okay, that's a little bit different than, like, Perrier's situation where it's like none of that's on him really yeah (laughs) so yeah there's there's certain things like when we talk about guarding uh resource guarding you know if it's just food and a a food bowl or toys or bones then that's very manageable but if they're guarding people and spaces that's pretty unmanageable So stuff like that, if, I, if I'm asked to take a dog that resource guards, I'm going to look at, you know, what they're resource guarding and how they're resource guarding. If they're going to guard an entire living room, yeah, I'm not going to take that on because that's what, what am I supposed to do with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely their history and kind of what triggers them and that sort of thing. The context of the incidents that have resulted in them being labeled however they're labeled. Things like that are just really important. And in the shelter, that can be a little bit harder, too. So everything is pretty situational. So that's just something to consider before we take them on. Obviously, that's not foolproof. We take on dogs that we think are going to be easy, quick quick fixes, and they're not. And vice versa. We take on dogs not even as behavior dogs, and they end up being behavior dogs. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then once we take on a dog, number one priority is just decompression. So that dog has almost, I won't say no expectations, but very little expectations outside of just like learning the routine and chilling out for the first one to two weeks, depending on the dog. And that just helps us assess like whether the behavior that they were seeing in the shelter or the the behavior that the owner was seeing was stress-based or based in not having their basic needs met. Perrier, a lot of his issues were that he wasn't getting any mental or physical exercise. So yeah, I'd be pretty grumpy too, (laughs) on top of never being socialized. So decompression is always our top priority. And side note, we should have an episode about how to bring home a new dog because decompression is really important for every dog. And it damn near always gets missed. Like people are introing their new dog to every friend and family member on day one and then going to Home Depot on day two and all this crazy stuff. The dog park like in the first week. Yeah, I used to be that person. A hundred percent. 
And then I started doing decompression because I always like I would pick up a dog from the shelter, drive home and start introducing it to Church and Peter. And as soon as I started doing decompression, my whole house changed mm-hmm. because by the time because they're living crate and rotate with these other dogs, by the time I do dog intros, it's not even an intro. They're like, oh, yeah, hey, I know you. What's up? Like, right. <laughs> they're like, yeah, I've, I've seen you. I've smelt you. I've heard you like not not a big deal to meet you anymore. And it just makes my life so much easier. <laughs> so once <laughs> once we're done with decompression then we'll start testing them Uh, we start with very basic stuff like food and when i say we're testing food i don't mean i am putting my my hand or any other extremity in their food bowl oh yeah that's not necessary for finding out whether a dog is (laughs) food aggressive and i'm also not grabbing bones from them i'm not taking anything from them (laughs) that is not what i mean we transition from feeding them in their kennel to feeding them like in the kitchen and I may or may not be walking around, but at no point am I approaching them or their food bowl. <laughs> Handling, if I can grab their paws, pet them all over, that sort of thing. Obviously, again, disclaimer, that has to be done very calmly, safely, etc. How they respond to the leash. Are they leash biting? Stuff like that. Do they walk well on leash or do they need a lot of leash work? That sort of thing. Uh, we start with pretty much the bare minimum. Because not until we have a pretty damn good grasp of who that dog is do we want to start moving on to harder tests like introducing them to visitors in the home or introducing them to people outside on walks or other dogs or children. Uh, I've had rescues that have hired me as a trainer be like, oh, can you dog test this dog? And I'm like, well, I mean, I got to like meet it first. (laughs) I can't just take a dog I don't know and throw it in the yard with a dog. So yeah, you got to build a little bit of foundation and then kind of amp up their testing from there. And then obviously that's dependent on the dog. So I have some dogs where I can pretty much tell early on like, oh, you're dog friendly for sure. You might just need to work on manners. Uh, And then there's other dogs that I'm like, they have some red flags. It's going to be a while before I can dog test them, right? So yeah, from there, we just assess any problems if they have any. And then we go into... Are their issues so big that, you know, they're not going to be available for adoption anytime soon? Or is it more of a long-term issue that regardless of when we put them up for adoption, their prospective owner is going to have to know how to manage it, right? From there, once we do the testing, we create kind of a game plan of what we need to address prior to making him available or them available, excuse me. I have all boy dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I do the same thing. Right. What we need to address before making them adopt adoptable and then kind of what will or won't be mandatory for adoption or after adoption so we have some dogs that we do free training for all of our adopters but some dogs it's like oh it's mandatory like you have to at least do a couple sessions as part of the process of taking in and rescuing a behavior dog i'm sure one of the biggest parts of that is figuring out where this dog is going to fit after it leaves you so how do you determine whether a family is a good fit for one of your dogs. So that's actually not as quite as much of a process as you would think because generally like their bios and everything we don't lay everything out but generally it's we're not getting a dozen applications for a behavior dog, right? <laughs> right. Unless it's very cute. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's a pretty fine line. You know, we, w- we want to be open to adoptions. I'm a huge advocate of 
if we want everybody to adopt, we can't make it fucking impossible, whether that be money or qualifications, right? So we want to be open to adoptions. We want to say yes to people. But we also have to ensure that we're being safe and responsible, right? There's a lot of people that don't believe behavior dogs should be rescued or adopted out. And so we have to make sure that we go above and beyond to make sure we're doing that safely. Our interview process for behavior dogs is pretty lengthy. And then we always start with uh, trial placements. So everything starts with the paper application or uh, electronic application rather where we just get their basic information of like, are there kids and pets in the home? That sort of thing. Are they in an apartment or a house? Just the basics. Um, And then from there, we kind of do an email interview of going back and forth of being like, all right, so here are the issues. These are the details. Are you familiar with it? Do you think you can handle it? So on and so forth. So by the time that they even meet the dog, we've, we've already had some pretty thorough communication The number one thing that we look for is definitely experience. It's not a deal breaker by any means, but if you don't have experience, then there obviously has to be a dedication to learning how to handle it, right? We provide a ton of support for adopters, especially behavior dogs. So we look for things like, are they interested and seemingly going to follow through with their free post-adoption training? Uh, Are they going to make connections with the foster home? That sort of thing to ensure there's a safety net. Um, So a lot of our behavior dogs, you know, they might not be able to go to a normal boarding facility or have a normal pet sitter type situation. So a lot of the times their fosters will offer to babysit them if their adopters ever go out of town. I have dogs that I adopted out four years ago that I still babysit regularly. (laughs) So just that sort of thing. Like, are they going to just adopt and disappear, which, which happens. I mean, I can't, I can't stop that from happening, but it's just something that we kind of take into consideration. I'm not going to hand you an aggressive dog and then never see you again. Right. <laughs> that seems unsafe. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a lengthy process to adopt out a behavior dog. But generally, if I've warned you off of a dog a dozen times in email and you still want to meet him, you're pretty dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing from a rescue standpoint is to be really upfront. So that's a bit of a look into the life of someone who frequently rescues behavior dogs. So we'll take a break here. And when we get back, we will talk about whether a behavior dog is right for you. Final margarita check. How's it going over there? Do you even have margarita left? Girl... (laughs) I thought so. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I, I haven't seen you drink anything. I have an empty glass with a cinnamon stick in it. I'm about halfway through my second one. Yeah, I really I really liked it. I mean, I'll just reiterate that it felt more like a fall cocktail than it felt like a flavored margarita, but which I'm I'm fine with. I'm fine with that too. I think we're going to have to go that route just because there's only so many margaritas you can make. Mine's a delight. And the longer I let the cinnamon stick stew, the better it gets. Yes. I was on the fence about the cinnamon stick because I was like, cranberry, lime, and cinnamon sounds a little not good. But man, I think it's making it. I think it's making the beverage. Next, we went to talk about how to decide whether a behavior dog is right for you. There's not a black and white answer to this question because every behavior dog is different. 
Some are going to have reactivity issues. Some are going to be maybe aggressive in certain cases. Um, some, like mine, just have separation anxiety. And so when you're deciding whether a behavior dog is right for you, you really need to be looking at the exact needs of that dog and whether you're truly able and willing to provide for those specific needs. The decision to adopt a behavior dog is definitely tough uh, because you don't really know what you're signing up for until you're living it. Um, so you definitely have to be objective on whether or not you have time, money, resources, like we already touched on quite a bit, um, you have to have a trainer. And behavior modification trainers are more expensive than normal trainers, generally speaking. Um, so you not only have to pay for that trainer, but you also have to dedicate a lot of time to doing the training. They're not just going to come fix your dog. They're going to teach you how to work with your dog. Uh, generally speaking, if they don't, I have questions, but, uh, <laughs> um, so not to say that you're going to fix the issue, but you still have to get them to the healthiest, happiest place possible, uh, just for their own sanity and probably yours. Cause living with a dog that's not healthy or happy isn't any fun. So whatever that looks like for them, like we talked about, Charlie's happiest, healthiest is being separated he's too much of a liability to rehome as an only dog. So those, those were our options. Definitely when you're considering it though, you should be asking a lot of questions because it'll save you a lot of time of trying to figure out a lot of things when they move in. And this is a good time to reiterate that your behavior dog, should you decide to take one on, needs to be coming from a responsible rescue who can speak thoroughly on those issues. So not a personal individual rescue from a backyard breeder because you see the conditions and feel bad for the dogs, which you should listen to our episode about how to pick your next dog for more info on that. And then not from an irresponsible rescue who isn't asking you a ton of questions and verifying that you know how to take care of this dog. Uh, So you need the complete lowdown on the dog. You need to be as informed as possible about the situation so that you can know how to handle it. And if your rescue is responsible, they're going to be taking steps to make sure that happens. I mean, like I said earlier, behavior rescues are not very common, so you should make sure that it's not just a rescue that got randomly stuck with a behavior dog they have no experience or resources handling, right? And then you should also definitely ask for recommendations for things, like how to successfully accomplish the more practical things, like vet visits, visitors, whatever tasks that their specific behavior problem might impact, it's not safe or healthy to have a dog that just cannot go to the vet, but it's also not safe to take a dog to the vet that's going to be aggressive to the vet. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely need to ask for recommendations for things like that. And then also recommendations for resources. Do they have a trainer that they recommend? Do That doesn't necessarily need to be the trainer that you hire, but just so you have a starting off point, right? Um, do they have a recommendation for the type of kennel? Do they have, like, you know, any anything like that? Calming treats, whatever it is. If they've been living with this dog, then they should have recommendations. <laughs> and then also I would say if they don't offer one already, 100% you should push for a trial period. There's a lot of troubleshooting when it comes to adding a behavior dog into your house. Uh, and let's be real, sometimes it doesn't work out like you imagined. So sometimes, yeah, you do need to return that dog. Hopefully you've done enough research ahead of time that that doesn't happen. But the reality is, you know, sometimes it does. 
Some shelters, it's not possible to have a trial period, but generally speaking, behavior cases should always have some sort of period with appropriate support to make sure they fit in. I have fostered for rescues before behavior cases that I've asked to do a trial with the adopter and the rescue says no. They're like, oh, no, we don't do trials. And it's like, well, you're adopting out a behavior case, so you're just going to adopt him out and wipe your hands of it? Or <laughs> Do you think this would be a good time to start? <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, well, and like they were paying me to board and train this dog. And then they paid me to go do the meet and greet. And I was like, so it'll, it'll be a trial? And they're like, no, we don't do that. And I'm like, but he's aggressive and there's a lot of rules to owning him. So maybe this would be a good... No, we don't do that. Okay, but you're paying me for my opinion. <laughs> and I'm telling you what needs to happen. And uh, sure enough, that dog ended up biting its owner and getting put down. Part of it was the owner didn't listen to me either. But it, it's like... Had it's just it was a whole strew of of bullshit. But I was really hoping that would have the worst possible ending. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like <laughs> god damn. I mean the the trial period wouldn't have saved that because even the mandatory training that we did post adoption, he tried to get out of and didn't listen to and stuff like that. So it was like it was a it was doomed anyways. But like they still the just the fact that the rescue refused to do a trial on the recommendation of a behavior dog's trainer is like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think the kind of the last thing that I wanted to make sure that we had in here is just that there actually are a lot of benefits to behavior dogs. Oh yeah. (laughs) So I don't think that really ever gets talked about, but I really wanted to make sure that we touch on that because it's always just framed in such a negative way. And it's, it's, really not that negative if you if you do it properly right um so i think we already kind of talked about a little bit uh peter is my severe fear dog and he only likes me i mean he's not aggressive towards people at all he just doesn't like them and avoids them at all costs (laughs) but he only likes me and i'm not gonna lie to you that's my favorite part about him I am his person. I'm the only person he cares about, and that just makes me feel fucking special. That's why I married my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Because he hates everybody else. Yeah, he he's a behavior husband. He doesn't like people except for me. I like it. That's that's what I'm. I mean, doesn't it feel great? Yeah, it does. To be, you're the one exception, right? (laughs) Uh, And I mean, he does like. He's nine years old, and over the years, he's he's picked a few people here and there that he really likes. But in nine years of having him, I can think of, like, four people that he genuinely likes. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, it's like, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's the caveat there of, obviously, I've made really sure that we don't have, like, an unhealthy attachment or relationship. That's not why he is the way he is. That's just who he is. And I'm just reaping the benefits. Uh, (laughs) And then for my aggressive dog, Charlie, there's just no connection like it. We had to spend so much time training and making sure that he was the least amount of liability possible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That we just kind of have this connection where, like, I move, he moves. I say something, he does it instantly. Like, it's fucking insane to have a connection like that with a dog. It still blows my mind, and it's been years. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we put in the work. It wasn't always that way. <laughs> right. It took a long time to get there, but, like, 
once you get there, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and there, there are benefits, too, that resemble what we talked about for hospice dogs, where, like, every once in a while, Scott and I will just kind of, like, we'll look at Balto, and we'll look at each other, and we'll be like, he's happy. Like, he's happy here with us. And it's just... Like, there's a benefit of that, of knowing that you're providing something for this dog that they could not get in a different family. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I went to Minnesota recently to visit one of our adopters that has two of our past dogs. And it's like the first dog was a major medical dog that nobody wanted. She's a middle-aged pit bull with reoccurring cancer. Hmm. Nobody was adopting that dog. Now she's a fucking therapy dog. Like... (laughs) And she is so happy. And there is one, like, we would have had a hell of a time adopting her out anyways. But had we done so, I am 100% confident she would never be as happy as she is now, nor would she have ever become a therapy dog. Hmm. And same with the second dog they adopted from us was just a puppy. So obviously highly adoptable. But, like, she's high, super high energy and kind of a brat. And it's like, if she didn't get to go run miles on acreage every day... She would have been in hell in Vegas. Like, yeah. Even if she went to the dog park every day, it wouldn't have been enough. Like, <laughs> so is that why you went out there to to transport Billy? No, Billy was already there. Okay. Uh, no, I'm just friends with their mom. I um, became friends with their mom when she adopted Junebug, the first dog, uh, whose name now is Bugsy, but I still accidentally call her Junebug all the time. <laughs> You should come visit Balto sometime. I know. I want to. I just want to see your fucking house because it's mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And haunted. I want. Yeah. Is it? Uh-huh. I don't want to be involved in that. She's uh, really nice. She's <laughs> she's not a mean ghost. <laughs> Mostly, I just want to help you set up that freaking training center garage thing. Oh, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's like my dream space. <laughs> okay. Then come out here and do it. Yeah. No, it needs to happen for sure. Plus, I've never been to Michigan. So one of the big benefits, especially for dogs that have issues with other dogs, is it's really nice to only have one dog. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what that's like anymore, but I don't know that I ever really knew what it was like because even when I just had Peter, I fostered, but (laughs) it's really nice. (laughs) Your life is just so much easier. Number one, it's a lot cheaper. An emergency vet bill isn't going to cripple you probably because you don't have three dogs all going to the vet at the same time. (laughs) Um, And then also, too, like you have the opportunity to kind of spoil them a little bit more. You can get them higher end food. You can get them whatever toys they want and stuff like that because there's not six of them. Right. And you can invest in activities that are personal to them. Yeah, you can you can afford, you know, agility classes or, or whatever it is that would be cool. You can afford doggy daycare every day that you go to work because there's only one of them. Or even like, you know, we, we're not um, expecting Balto to go anytime soon, but he is 12. And we have talked about, you know, when we just have Mooney, there will be activities that we do with Mooney that we just wouldn't do because we have Balto. Like Balto's not going to go kayaking yeah. with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's just it's a little bit easier. It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> and it's just I mean, it's 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 a different relationship. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of benefits to it. My big thing is just it's cheaper. But <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the times I think only dogs get a rap of being aggressive or dangerous. And most of them aren't. 
Like, most of them are fine walking at the park and stuff like that. They just don't want to share their home. Yeah. They don't want to share their person. And honestly, I feel like there's a lot of people that also don't want more than one dog. They just feel like only dogs are dangerous for some reason. And it's like, that's not always the case. Sometimes it is. And in that case, then that's a different conversation. But we have an only dog at Churchill that, you know, we've had for going on three years, over three years around there. He's the easiest dog in the world. He is not reactive. He can go to the park. He can go to pet stores. He can go to events. He can borderline meet other dogs. Like, he's not terrible at it. I don't do it just for safety, but I've had him off-leash and muzzled around my dogs, and he does okay 90% of the time. But that other 10% isn't worth the risk to me, and he's much happier being by himself. Yeah. So it's like, there's no issue there. Like, as long as you don't care about having another dog or babysitting your friend's dog or whatever, there's not going to be any problem with you having him. Yeah. He is the freaking best like he's super chill he's obedient and he's cute Uh, he is the most adorable Uh, (laughs) but even even people that don't have other dogs they'll be like oh what about dublin and they're like "Uh," like they think there's something inherently wrong with him and i'm like he's literally the best dog ever i've never had anyone meet him and not fall in love yeah but like people people won't even come meet him because they're just like oh no dogs no i can't i can't do that like, were you planning on getting a second dog? Well, no, but, like, I don't, I don't what's the problem? <laughs> I, I don't understand. But, yeah, especially only dogs, I feel like, get a particularly bad rap. And, you know, I'll just keep circling back to dogs are individuals. They're not all created equal, so they're not necessarily aggressive. Some of them just don't want to live in a house with other dogs. I think that about wraps it up. Our eighth episode is ready Oops. to be lit out of the kennel. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Miss Lily's Dogs or on my website, MissLily'sDogs.com or my online online training platform, Patreon.com slash Miss Lily's Dogs. And you can find me on Instagram at LV and my website, ProperPuppersLV.com. In our next episode, we will be drinking holiday-themed margaritas and talking about proper socialization next time on the Doggeritaville podcast. Thanks for listening to Doggeritaville. Send us an email at doggeritaville at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram at doggeritaville. And let us know if there are any topics you'd like to see covered or if there are any margaritas you want us to try. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, give your dog a treat from us.